Hi, this is Ann Rosenfield, and I am with Charitably Speaking, and I was the chair of AFP Congress this year, and I'm joined by none other than... Laura Champion, fundraising strategist from Blakely and the education chair for this past year's Congress. What you're about to listen to is one of our red level sessions, which is one of our leadership level sessions. So I'm really pleased that we're putting it out in the stream and giving it an opportunity to anyone of any level to learn more about this topic. So scaling up in terms of charities is a really important uh, question and is something that we all aspire to. So I'm really happy that we have experts from LEAP and the PICO Center able to really give us some in-depth information on this topic. Hope you enjoy this and all the other podcasts in this series. Enjoy. We're looking forward to seeing you at Congress in the future. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Everybody feeling good? Ready to go for the last morning here before we head off to lunch. Um, this is one that I've personally been looking forward to throughout Congress, so I'd like to thank Narinder and Gaurav for being here. Um, this session is Scaling Up, Growing Your Organization for Greater Impact. Um, we will, just as a couple of housekeeping items, I will circulate copies of the evaluation forms to everybody. If you are using the app, you can do all of your evaluations within the app uh, itself, which is which is much easier and saves some time on the administration end. Before we begin, I'd like to welcome the Offered Group and Robin Fowler to come up and say a few words. Hi there, everybody. It's a great delight for us to be the sponsor for this session and a bunch of others at Congress. I hope you've had an amazing conference. If you haven't seen our magazine before, I encourage you to pick one up today. And there are lots of our others on our website. And if you haven't heard about our major gift productivity study, do let me know. We'd love to be a part of that. And you're in for a treat. Narinder, I've known for a long time since she's been at uh, LEAP. And I think today's session is going to be great. So have a fantastic conference. Have a great lunch. And good luck taking your little nuggets back to the office. Take care. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. Um, out of uh, So Offered has been one of our... Uh, one of our partners from the start. Um, and so we at the LEAP Pico Center help scale what works. Uh, I'm Narendra. I'm with my colleague Gaurav. We'll get into who we are in a moment, but we wanted to give you an introduction of the center. Now, before I do that, out of a show of hands, how many folks here are working in the charitable sector? Nonprofits, charities? Okay. Um, and the others would be funders. How many funders here? Okay, great. And out of the folks working in the charitable sector, how many of you are exploring how to scale your intervention or your program? Okay, great, perfect. So we're in the right space. Um, so we're gonna talk about growing your organization, steps and missteps of scaling. At the center, we've been doing this for the last six years formally, um, but our history really started with Pathways to Education and that story. Um, we're gonna watch a little video to get us started. That's just the essence of who we are. We believe that collectively we can do good better when you start working across silos, um, across the corporate sector in partnership, deep partnership with the nonprofit sector, with government. Um, we can address some of those big, um, hairy challenges and sticky social issues that we're facing. Uh, there you go. Okay, so today's conversation is around scaling. Um, you know, we always believe, you know, I think there's a, a belief that if we want to scale, it'll be nice and easy. We have a target. We have a plan. I think everyone in this room 
I mean, particularly if you work in the nonprofit sector, you realize that it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, there's a lot of pivots. There's uh, a lot of um, new information um, and just events that happen through the journey of scaling that requires you to be nimble, resilient, um, and adaptive to the growing need of the communities you're serving and the changing uh, landscape of funders and donors and government. Um, so for the next 90 minutes, we're going to share a little bit about who we are as a center, who we are as individuals. Uh, where we want to talk about how the odds are actually stacked up against scaling, in particular in the Canadian context of social, of social impact. And then we'll talk through tips and examples um, of how you, can, how you can scale. So we're going to start off with a bit about us. And just to give you an introduction to who I am, um, I started off uh, in electrical engineering, uh, thought that I wanted to be an engineer, worked in a bunch of different roles um, in engineering, uh, had a change of heart, did my MBA. Then as kind of every MBA uh, wants, I thought investment banking or management consulting. So I worked in investment banking, um, quickly realized that was not for me, moved to West Africa, spent uh, two years working in Burkina Faso, Mali and Côte d'Ivoire at La Première Agence de Microfinance, which was a microfund that operated across a three-country space. Uh, they were growing. They were a young microfund with four offices in three countries. Uh, when I left, uh, we were in 12 offices in the three countries and um, deeply embedded into uh, North uh, Côte d'Ivoire and kind of South Mali and across Burkina Faso. Um, so went through, you know, as a program manager, managing the IT system, the financial management of an organization, went through that process of scaling uh, with PAM. Uh, then I came back to Canada, uh, met up with somebody who you may know, uh, Joe Rotman and Sandy Rotman of the Rotman School. They had an idea. They had a vision of uh, ensuring that people with a history of mental health and addiction challenges had access to uh, entrepreneurship as a viable career path. Uh, so I began a journey with the Rotmans, Cam H and the Rotman School uh, to build an organization called R Rise Asset Development. It was a Rotman Cam H project. Um, I helped scale it across Ontario. Um, it's now scaling across the country, um, in, in, which is really exciting to see. Uh, so post the Ontario scale of Rise, I moved back to West Africa and worked with Acumen. Uh, so Acumen, have, have folks heard of Acumen? It, it, it's just actually, as, a, as an example of great storytelling, I think everyone in this room should go to their website and check it out. Um, they do a phenomenal job in sharing the work that they do. Uh, they're an impact investor that invests debt and equity into social enterprises um, that provide access to a product or service to the bottom of the pyramid. Um, so I went back to West Africa. I was working and living in Ghana and Nigeria um, and, and looking at investments within um, social enterprises um, that were um, mostly linked to farming. But really, you know, you know, the core focus of what we were doing at Acumen was helping really compelling social enterprises scale to more people um, in their local context. And then for the last almost five years, I've been at LEAP, the PICO Center for Social Impact. Uh, and we are a partnership of the Boston Consulting Group, Ernst & Young, McCarthy Tetro, Hill & Knowlton, um, and a few other phenomenal partners that we will get to. I'm going to pass it on to Gaurav to give you a quick intro on who he is. Right, so very, <clears throat> sorry, very similar to Narinder, I started out as an engineer, got an engineering degree in India, and then moved to the U.S. to get a master's in computer engineering, post which I started my career at Qualcomm in San Diego, where I was uh, designing memories for cell phones. So did that for about 
five and a half, six years and just realized that wasn't for me. Engineering wasn't for me. So I moved to Spain uh, to get an MBA at the Isade Business School in Barcelona, where I specialized in uh, strategy, general management, and entrepreneurship. Uh, post which, um, I also thought about being either a management consultant or an investment banker. It's a curse. I, if you do an MBA, I think everyone, some, I'm sure there's MBAs in this room, but I, I think you'd agree it's a curse that we all think we need to do that. But my heart <laughs> lay elsewhere, so I ended up going to the Clinton Foundation instead and worked uh, at the Clinton Health Access Initiative um, based out of India, but working in Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and Southeast Asia, looking to scale better access to diagnostic equipment and medication around uh, women's contraception, cryptococcal meningitis, and hepatitis C. So I did that for a bit and then moved to the corporate sector, moving to London to work with British Telecom, where I started out as a strategy consultant, so eventually did go back into consulting. And then after a few years there, moved with British Telecom uh, into their sustainability uh, practice. So essentially, I was heading up their sustainable business division, where we were looking uh, to see how technology could help our customers meet their own social and environmental sustainability goals across the world. And then we ran a number of programs in our own right as well. So one of the ones which I'm most proud of having run is working with SOS Children's Villages, which is a global charity uh, that supports children um, who have lost their parents by creating a family unit once again. And we wanted to scale up digital inclusion with those villages. So using our satellite technology at BT, we ended up uh, connecting 30 villages across 13 countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And I actually got a chance to go on the ground, implement the project, do the impact assessment, which was amazing. Um, last year, I moved to Canada. And earlier this year, I uh, joined LEAP, the Pico Center for Social Impact, as their portfolio manager. And I have a dual role here. I run due diligence for the center. So any organizations that want to join the portfolio go through a due diligence process, which I'll talk to you about a little bit later. And I also uh, lead the engagement with Google.org, who are one of our partners, uh, on the Google Impact Challenge Canada. So at the center, our vision is a Canada where the most marginalized and underserved com communities and people have access to the best interventions to overcome persistent barriers to health, education, and employment. And the way we want to do that, the model that we want to use, is to mobilize the private and public sectors to scale what works. And when we talk about the private sector, Narendra already mentioned our corporate partners. There's a list down here. But we're looking to work with more corporate partners as well, beyond the ones we have. And we're looking to work with the public sector, social ventures, charities, nonprofits, the government, uh, foundations, to be able to work as a cohesive group, to be able to then have a systemic change on barriers to health, education, and employment. Um, so to give you a little bit of a flavor of our model, I'm going to play a short video and then hand over to Narinder to go over some of the details. Making an impact in the world is about more than just good intentions. With over 85,000 charities in Canada, it can be difficult to identify and support the ones with the greatest potential. And often, nonprofits require significantly more resources and business expertise to realize their potential. Introducing LEAP. LEAP is inspired by the legacy of corporate strategist and civic entrepreneur David Pico, who mobilized the private sector to help solve social issues. 
Just as private equity investors use their expertise to help proven businesses succeed, our venture philanthropy model applies this approach to help charities achieve massive social impact. We run a deep due diligence to select high-impact organizations with great ideas and measurable results. LEAP then commits for the long term, providing hands-on support and surrounding them with our private sector partners, the Boston Consulting Group, EY, Perennial Design, McCarthy Tetro, Hill & Knowlton Strategies, and the Offered Group. We unlock nonprofit sector potential through forward-thinking donors who invest in LEAP and our portfolio charities. By applying these approaches and engaging our partners, the services provided by these leading nonprofits are no longer limited. We help nonprofits reach their potential by growing their social impact from a local level to a national one, helping more Canadians across the country. Partner with us to achieve massive social impact. Um, David Pico. How many of you uh, knew of David Pico? Okay. And, and so he is, you know, the reason we exist as a center. He was, uh, for those of you who don't know, um, <clears throat> led the Boston Consulting Group in Canada, but was also very committed to the social sector. <coughs> uh, he touched uh, many projects across the city, across the country. Uh, he had a knack at being able to mobilize uh, people from all, from, from all walks of life, different sectors, different silos, bring them together and drive solutions to some of the issues we were facing as a city and as a country. And if you remember the SARS concert, that was uh, one that he was behind, getting the Rolling Stones to come to Canada, uh, come to Toronto in particular, to say that it's safe to be outside and to be in big masses together. Uh, you see some projects like uh, TRIAC, like Civic Action, that he co-founded, Luminato. Uh, but he, we take a lot of inspiration from David. And we, we tried to uh, live in his legacy and work in his legacy each day. Um, and part of that is Pathways to Education. So Pathways to Education, I imagine most of you are versed with who Pathways are, so I won't go into the details of that. But here's an organization that about 10 years ago had phenomenal local reach. You know, they were doing some great work in Regent Park. Um, they knew they were onto something special and they needed support to articulate that into a business case that would resonate both with other private uh, corporates and the public sector. And, and that's where the Boston Consulting Group came in, uh, EY and others who, you know, this is pre-existent of the center, but all of our partners essentially came together and said, this is a great idea. How do we mobilize now the private sector and in the future the public sector to scale this? Um, so pathways before had two things that were critical, a proven local impact and strong leadership. Uh, then we paired and teamed with them. Uh, we brought in that institutional expertise, pro bono, the measurement, the social return on investment um, that um, was completed uh, when we started, when BCG started working with them in about 2006, 2008. Um, and then also started creating a, a, an easily digestible package um, and vision for others in the public sector and the private sector to invest in pathways to education. Um, so, so part of it was, what is a business case to get government to allocate funding toward the highest impact interventions? 
And that was one of the things we worked with in partnership with our corporate sectors. Um, and then what we saw is through a deep partnership between a high-impact nonprofit, um, high-impact businesses, and government, uh, we could really achieve scale and grow an intervention across Canada. So when you look at Pathways today, uh, they, have, they still have evidence um, and they continue to build out the evidence of their intervention. They have strong leadership and they're motivated to continue to scale and impact the lives of thousands of kids. Um, they have deep partnerships with institutional uh, organizations, so you know BCG, EY, and others. Um, we've been able to direct capital to Pathways to Education, and I say we, not in the center we, but in the collective we of our corporate partners, government, and such, and, and now they have national impact. So that is what really created our model. So we believe that if you take great ideas, proven interventions within the social sector that have strong leadership, that have an evidence base of data, that are scalable, that have a real strong appetite for growth, you pair that with leading knowledge within the business sector. So we work with BCG, EY, McCarthy Tetro, Offered, Hill and & Knowlton, and Google. Um, and then infuse smart money into the mix uh, from the public sector, from, from, pri from private donors, um, and philanthropy. Then collectively, we can work and solve some of our bigger social challenges and, and scale what works. So I'm going to pass it over to Gaurav to talk a little bit about our portfolio right now. Sure. So the way we think about our portfolio is essentially in, in two ways. So over the last five years, we've partnered with 13 social ventures, nonprofits, charities, um, in order to support them to scale their own um, interventions and programs and organizations. And we almost think of the portfolio in two ways. The first one we call our scalarator. And we've, over the last five years, looked at uh, over 600. It's almost close to 700 yeah, now, now, actually, yeah. organizations or through our due diligence process to be able to select four. Um, so we've got SNAP, Stop Now and Plan. You'll hear about them a little bit more um, later. Uh, we've got Triac, Rumi, and SmartSaver. And essentially what we've done is, as Narendra was mentioning in our model previously, we've taken what they had, taken the intervention that they had that was proven, and then combined that with the support and the expertise and experience of our sector partners, as well as the LEAP team, to help them scale. Um, so SNAP has been our longest engagement. We're at the five-year mark in an eight-year journey, actually, with them. On average, we tend to work with our portfolio organizations for five years. So that's why we call this the Scalarator model. The name isn't picking up. I like it internally, Scalarator. I don't know how folks feel about it, but it's meant to be more than an accelerator. Um, but yeah. There weren't very many nods, but I know, I know, I know. I need to, we need to rebrand, but that's fine. Uh, the other side, of course, we've been working over the last two years with Google.org on our accelerator model. And so Google was running the Google Impact Challenge in Canada for the first time two years ago, and they partnered with Leap to help select 10 organizations that were using technology to create massive social impact. And in the first year, um, all 10 of these organizations were given uh, support both from Google in terms of monetary support as well as resources, and the LEAP team and our sector partners to scale up a particular intervention or project. However, for the second year, which is what we're in now, uh, five of those organizations, they went through another application and due diligence process, and five of those organizations, uh, we are working with them for one year, which is why they're the accelerator model. 
uh, to provide the same support that we provide to our Scalarator organization. It's just that we aren't providing it for five years, we're providing it for the next year with all of our sector partners around particular challenges that they're facing, not around scaling the intervention, but around scaling the organization as a whole. Um, and so if we just go into this a little bit in detail, so as I said, our Scalarator investments are high-impact nonprofits delivering health, education, and employment outcomes. SNAP is, um, stands for Stop Now and Plan, and it is a program that teaches children with conduct disorder to make better choices in the moment. Um, so we've helped SNAP scale. Um, these are a bunch of numbers, and we'll, of course, share the presentation, so you'll have this. But just a few to point out that as of today, 7,000-plus uh, children with conduct disorder have been reached per year at scale across the country. So that's SNAP. Uh, we've got TRIAC, which is uh, the mentoring partnership, which is supporting recent skilled immigrants who come to... Are you from TRIAC? Sorry, you just raised your hand. Oh, oh great. great. Hopefully. And now you're employed in your field of work? Perfect. That's what they're yes, aiming the to do. Yes, success for so. TRIAC. <laughs> Oh, great, great. So thank you. I, I won't yeah. go into Triac. Please speak to yeah. this lady here uh, for Triac. Rumi actually is both part of our Scalarator and our Accelerator program. Uh, but Rumi essentially is using technology to provide free educational resources to communities around the world. And the uniqueness of their model, of course, is the fact that those educational resources can be accessed offline as well. So you don't actually need to have internet connectivity to be able to access education through uh, their tablets. Uh, and so they've got, they're in 21 countries now and counting. Um, and the last one is a Smart Saver, which is focused on increasing update of, uh, uptake of the Canada Learning Bond. And just a little piece of um, information. So we've been working with Smart Saver as well in trying to scale them. And we like to go deep with these interventions, with these organizations. Um, and in fact, over yesterday and the last week, um, we've been working with Smart Saver to, in the Jane and Finch area to pilot how do you increase uptake of the Canada Learning Bond? How do you get more people to sign up? Um, and just this morning, the numbers came in. Uh, so just in two days, we managed to sign um, 400, almost 400 families, over 600 children, which over a 15-year period uh, would represent uh, an educational savings of uh, about a million dollars. So that is the kind of scale that we want to um, aspire to in everything that we do. Um, so that's our Scalarator. As I said, our Accelerator, I won't go into the details of these, but it's a pretty wide set. Um, so there are organizations here that are working on food insecurity, in uh, disaster relief, in health-related um, issues, uh, working with um, environmental stewardship and education. So once again, all of the organizations are organizations that are having massive social impact, and we are working with them to help them, support them with our sector partners, scale up that impact even further. Um, and the way we select organizations is by going through a pretty stringent, in some ways, due diligence criteria. As you can imagine, as I said earlier, 600-plus organizations um, have gone through the due diligence process. We've got four as of now. Um, so the due diligence, we've got six criteria that we dig deep into. Um, and due diligence typically runs about six months, sometimes even longer. Um, where there have been organizations where we've gone up to nine months really digging in to make sure that we are the right fit for them and they are the right fit for us, and that this will truly be a long-term partnership to scale. Um, Narinder tends to describe it as a 
almost a year-long dating process before we get into a five-year marriage. Um, hopefully an amicable separation <laughs> after that, where they don't need us. But essentially, that's, the, that, that's where it starts. So an organization applies. They go through a due diligence criteria. And then once they're selected, we work with them and our sector partners to put together a scale-up plan. So that's phase one, the planning phase, where we select the charity and co-create a five-year growth plan. Once that's done, we go into stage two, which is building capacity. And this could be in, in literally any kind of um, support that they need, right? So it could be as much as finding an executive director. It could be uh, how do you promote your organization? How do you market yourself better? How do you actually evaluate your impact? How do you get access to government? And so on and so forth. So in anything that the organization needs, we want to go and have a deep partnership with them. And finally is phase three, where once we've built capacity, they go into a national scale-up. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Narinder to talk a little bit about how the odds uh, and the system are actually stacked against scaling before we go into the final section about how do you break through. Great, thank you. Um, and, and so what we've, and I think everyone will be versed with the numbers, but there's 170,000 nonprofits in Canada, um, just over 85,000 registered charities, so it's often hard to find those that are, have the breakthrough um, program that is driving deep uh, impact and, um, and, and enablement at a community level. Um, you know, in some ways, Canada is in, in a great place. We are more socially and economically prosperous than ever. Um, so we are more educated as a country. Uh, we live in safer communities based on the numbers. Uh, we have real high, we have higher real wages, um, and fewer of us are living in poverty. Uh, these stats um, do not tell the full story. Uh, when you think about education, uh, the Canadian education averages mass the deep inequities that exist across our country. And if you just look at indigenous education rates, it's a great example of how we are not doing good um, enough. Um, you look at that wage growth um, is not benefiting everybody. There's growing inequity in our country like there is around the world. Um, and we have multiple health um, conditions that are worsening. And you see rates, for example, of type 2 diabetes and obesity um, that could potentially cripple our healthcare system, um, are, uh, these are growing at a staggering rate. Um, so what we believe is that unlike the private sector, um, there is a gap in the nonprofit sector of a market force that truly enables the best and brightest to grow. If you have a great idea in the private sector, you can access venture capital, and then through that capital you get the right support strategies to grow. In the nonprofit sector, decision-making is not, is not executed in, that market force doesn't exist in the decision-making of funding allocation. Um, and so a great example is when you look at um, the, the corporate sector, the top 10 companies 50 years ago, and take a look at the top 10 companies today. None of them are the same. Um, and we've evolved. The way we think of uh, organizations, assetless or uh, what be it, has evolved. And again, we have innovated, we have changed, we've evolved. Um, but when you look, when you put, put the same proxy onto the nonprofit sector, you don't see that type of change. So are we adapting 
our interventions to truly support the people in need um, is a question we have. And if we find those interventions that are truly affecting um, great local impact, how do we take that and then grow that um, so that more Canadians that are vulnerable or underserved have access to the best interventions and not just the interventions that are closest to them? Um, uh, Gaurav's going to talk to some of the sector-wide challenges, uh, but we really, we truly see scaling uh, as something that go that is cross-sectoral. It's not about um, the business the business community coming in. It's about the business community with government, with the nonprofit community, partnering on an issue that is challenging our most underserved, and figuring out how we can best uh, resolve and solve those challenges. So I'm going to pass it over to Gaurav, who will talk through some of the structural challenges within the sector. Thank you. <clears throat> so there were three, we were talking about this internally, and we realized there were three sort of buckets of, of, of key areas where we believe there are true structural challenges. There's people, data and technology, and really the fundamentals of the sector. So let's start with people. We've learned and we believe that the social sector actually underinvests in human capital in everything from recruitment, retention, to succession planning. And that's a huge challenge to scaling. So one is, of course, because there's underinvestment, that limits the potential of the leaders as well as the teams across nonprofits and charities. The second is that boards of nonprofits, charities, social enterprises tend to be risk averse. And so leaders are incentivized to be stewards rather than risk, risk takers. And number three, is that because there is lower retention and higher turnover, that institutionalized knowledge seems to get lost. This will also be related to the point I'll make later around using technology better, but essentially there is a loss of institutional knowledge which then leads to a higher resource cost and high ramp up times as you get more new people in. So those are three of the structural challenges we believe uh, hinder <coughs> scaling on the people side. <clears throat> in terms of data, both charities and funders lack access to data that they need to make critical decisions and understand and articulate their own impact. So on the charity side, there is an absence of strong and reliable data, and that leads to a lack of opportunity for the charities and nonprofits, not realizing where their intervention across Canada would be best suited just because there is a lack of data to understand where the biggest need lies. The second is, funders find it difficult to place bets because there's a lack of clarity on which charities are having the large, largest impact. So we all talk about impact assessment and impact evaluation, but what we're finding is, by and large, that impact isn't articulated and funding decisions are still made based on emotion and or who has the best story to tell, rather than who's creating the largest impact. And finally, <clears throat> The sector just does not use technology as best as they could to increase their reach, productivity, and also an understanding of their own impact. So these are some challenges that we see on the data and technology side. And I'll just add to that. I was out in Regina last week. There's a movement of what work centers across Canada of how can you build out um, the evidence base of you know, which interventions are more effective and then ultimately influence allocation of capital to those interventions. But one of the speakers said, it's an interesting um, situation where uh, when, we, when we as funders ask uh, the charitable sector to measure their impact, 
we give them a bunch of money to do that. Um, but it's, it's as if you're asking somebody to mark their own homework. And, and so what type of, um, you know, what type of reliability and what type of, um, what, can be, what can we be missing in that process by asking people and enabling people to mark their own homework? I thought that was an interesting uh, thought that I would share with this group. Um, and on the third one, the fundamentals of our sector are driving fragmentation, resulting in duplication and inefficiency. And what we mean by this is capital flows today are driving fragmentation because capital flows are driven, as we said earlier, either by emotion or by politics. And they aren't necessarily being driven by who's actually breaking through and who's creating true impact across the country. So there's an issue with organizations that are having great impact scaling up because the capital isn't actually reaching them. The second one is regulations are antiquated and they're not keeping pace with the innovations of the sector. Uh, we were talking to uh, Bill Young, who is from Social Capital Partners, who's on our board. Um, and he was saying that, or his view would be that today the Charitable Act is talking about looking to incentivizing alleviation of poverty rather than prevention of poverty. And that is an issue with the way the regulation is currently uh, set up. And the third one, of course, is getting buy-in and support from the government is perceived as both daunting and lacking transparency. And in many ways, uh, I think the sector tends to see the government as this black box, and we don't quite know how to get into that black box, don't quite know um, how funding decisions are made. Um, and so that, of course, uh, because the government is such a key partner that one needs to have to be able to scale, uh, both in terms of funding as well as policies, that leads to a lack of scale. If I pause there, does anyone have comments? Um, we do want to make this an interactive session. So comments from you know, what we see as a barrier to scaling. Are there other um, areas that you've seen in your experience? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, it, it's it's inter I was talking to a fellow. Uh, do you guys know Powered by Data? Um, okay, so they're a great organization, and they're really focused on how do you uh, unlock open data and administrative data across Canada. And he's doing some work with uh, Giving Tuesday, and you know the way capital the, the biggest driver to how people give on Giving Tuesday um, is if you have a, a, a photo of a kid. That is the biggest driver of, um, of getting funding. And if you have, like, there's other little, like, nuances that they've figured out. Um, but what we know, and there's been other studies, uh, SSIR has an article that, are, um, that did a study of giving three examples of how you could give. One was a purely emotional ask. One was an ask that combined motion and uh, numbers and rationality. And the other one was a fully rational kind of numbers ask. And the one that was purely emotional got the most allocation of funding toward it. Um, so they, they did a survey around that. But, but what we see is that, um, in, in a, in a, that capital today is not necessarily linked to the evidence of impact of the interventions across the sector. So capital today flows through um, the organizations that have invested heavily on marketing and fundraising and articulating their story. In some situations, those are the best interventions, um, so I'm not saying they aren't, but that is disconnected from the actual evidence base of um, impact. 
Um, and, and so that's where we see the opportunity and actually this What Works Center movement that's happening, it's happened in the US and the UK already and slowly trying to move into Canada, is how can you use evidence as kind of the core of decision making and then you know, you, you still, storytelling is a critical element of, 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 of inciting um, philanthropy and, and other items and that's still such a critical component. But like, if we can make our core the evidence base and wrap around the rest, I th we believe that we can better allocate capital in the sector. Yes. I don't argue with uh, the idea that being able to communicate the impact is a great yeah. thing. My, my question is, how do, how do you change human behavior? Yeah. Um, sure. Because humans, for the most part, give on emotion. Yes. Regardless of impact. Yeah. Um, the majority of, I mean, if you look at mass, yeah. mass donors, uh, mass marketing, so forth, you know, even if you look at the corporate world, we're, we're still given to the best commercials. Oh, um, yeah. Not based Absolutely. on the best products, you know. Yeah. I still have my beta machine, right? Yeah. It, it, um, product quality isn't the indicator of success. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested to know how that actually will play out for you. Yeah. I mean, I'm all for organizations being able to demonstrate better impact. Yeah. I think that's excellent, and we need to move towards that as an industry. It's going to be interesting to see how that connects to giving as well, because donors don't always follow the impact, they follow the story. Yeah. They follow the, I mean, pictures of kids and big eyes, yeah. right? That works. Um, my second question is, I'm curious to know if you as an organization, as a company, will work with the Canadian government, and you talk about regulations are antiquated, don't, I don't disagree. Yeah. Um, one of the real challenges is, as an individual organization, even a small group of organizations trying to have any kind of impact on the CRA is quite difficult. And there are, we can only lobby so much because becoming too political becomes a challenge too. Yeah. And uh, so I'm curious to know how your company will work yeah. with that question. Uh, great. To both, both great questions. I'll start with the first one. Uh, so just as a, a quick FYI, we are a registered charity in Canada. Um, we, we are now in deep conversations with government um, on how do we bring less on the regulation right now. There are other players like Imagine Canada that are moving, um, that are taking a, a bolder step in, in the regulation side. We're talking more on the policy front and how do you integrate um, really high impact interventions and then solve some of those policy system issues um, that prevent, um, that are creating the issue in the first case or um, are, are, are creating um, a barrier for that intervention to flourish. Uh, so I, I do think right now it's also a great time with the Senate review that's happening uh, within the charitable space. Um, so Senator Ratna has been kind of one of the leading uh, chargers in, in the space of how do we think through um, the, the charitable sector's governance and how, you know, right now we don't have a home. The charitable sector, like what is our home CRA? That's actually not an appropriate home for a charitable sector. So we, we touch and influence every, every ministry, every space of the sector or of, of government, which makes it hard for us to then create the movement we want because it's just so wide, so broad. 
um, uh, I, we do envision ourselves playing a more, uh, a more vocal role in that, and, and through our support of our corporate partners, we hope that you know, it, it, it will be a collective voice on how we can see us creating a more thriving um, social sector. Um, on your first point, absolutely agree, the private sector is just as emotional. Uh, there's a really good Harvard Business Review study that looks at uh, private equity and how decisions are made in the first uh, like a few days of meeting the uh, investee, and due diligence just reinforces what your belief is. Right? Like, I, think there's, I think there's a lot of like, human behavioral challenges, um, and I think that's a great question. How do we change mindset? And if we truly want to drive deep systems change in Canada, what we need is the best interventions to grow and touch more people. And so I think that's, it is an uphill battle because we're, you know, we're fighting against human tendencies and human behavior. But I do, I'm optimistic, I do think that the more you get out the why and the stories around why the evidence is so effective, that you can start to chip away at that. And just to add to that, I think on the private side at least, on the corporate sector side, um, you're right, people do buy based on the marketing and the snazzy ads and all of that, but I think in the long term, um, people will not pay money for a bad product as much as the, you know, the marketing budgets of organizations might be pushing the message out. And that doesn't necessarily today translate over just because on the, and you're right, it is a challenge in terms of when you give, you give an emotion. Um, we did a study last year with uh, Hill and Knowlton about this charitable landscape in, um, across uh, Canada, and we're just working to publish that study. But essentially, in that, there are some very key things. So the older generation today in Canada, who are the ones that give the most, uh, because they give on an annual basis, they don't give one-time donations, and so overall, on a yearly basis, they give more money, uh, are declining in terms of how many people are actually contributing. Uh, and the millennial generation that is starting to give more and, uh, in the charitable space are more and more cognizant of giving when they understand what the impact of their dollars is going to be. Uh, and so there is a shift, but then charities and nonprofits and organizations need to be more cognizant of how they start to articulate that story. And it can't just be a story because the people that are starting to now donate um, are going to be not entirely happy with just the story. Uh, and so that's where the shift is. It's not an overnight shift. We completely agree with you. It's going to be the long haul. But I think the, the point we want to make is it is imperative that that happens because that is where funding is shifting. Yeah. One final comment on market forces is, is around, we don't have a lot of nonprofits and charities close their doors. We have a lot of businesses fail. And, and so um, is that because we're just collectively better at the charitable sector of doing good and running businesses? Or is that because there's a, a, some kind of gap in the market force that actually forces corporates and businesses to close? Um, when they're not producing um, at a level that is, is appropriate for the customers or the clients that they're trying to reach. And we just don't have that same beneficiary voice within our sector to ensure that we are producing the highest quality outputs. And I think that's where, it's like, how do you build that market force that comes from the beneficiaries? Yeah. Yeah. Pay. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to pay yeah, 
Yeah. So we are talking more about the capital allocation. You know, in Canada, well, we're at two hundred. It's a two hundred and fifty billion dollar space, the charitable sector, um, and, and that is really just a charitable sector. I think impact investing and investing debt and equity is a phenomenal movement. I think, just practically speaking, it is still small in Canada. If you look at um, all of the uh, all of the foundations or funds that have been created in impact investing, um, they are. Um, they, they are investing in the same handful of organizations. Um, so the flow of debt, and you can't really do equity in charities, but if the flow of debt into the, the charitable sector um, is still, um, I think, nascent uh, within the space. Um, so we're, we're, our, our, our lens is more charitable giving, traditional charitable giving. Any other questions? I think I, think I saw a hand at the back. Thank you. Just taking a lot in today and understanding how it fits to me. But I'm curious about the uh, the funders, as um, you've called them, as opposed to donors. And so what are they expecting as a return on their funding of the uh, investment? So for us, when we... We've been able to, so our, our, in our six years, we've been able to mobilize $50 million directly into our portfolio projects, uh, all traditional charitable grants or uh, charitable dollars. Uh, they, those folks in general expected both um, that, well, they expected the, char the, the social return on investment of the, the, the projects that they were investing in. Uh, I would say that in general, what we see is that uh, there's this great intentionality of doing good when it comes to uh, the, the funders and the folks that deploy capital into the sector, whether it's individuals or foundations or government. Um, but it does take a, a lot of, um, it, it takes a lot of effort to go beyond that to say what is the evidence base and is this evidence actually changing the lives of the beneficiaries. Um, and, and so I think yeah, I'm not sure if I fully answered your question, but you know, it's it's about social return. I think we're all in it for the right reasons of social return. Um, I'll, I'll I'll end with a quote. Um, there's an organization called Robin Hood Foundation in New York City, phenomenal organization. Um, they've mobilized about 2.3 billion dollars um, um, over their existence of about 30 years. And they, they essentially, the reason they're called Robin Hood is they take from the rich, give to the poorest. Um, probably a very clear reason why they've named themselves Robin Hood. Uh, but the Emery Emerson, who runs their um, programming, uh, was up, up here with us. And we were talking, and she had a quote around uh, the charitable sector and how, you know, we all got into the charitable sector because we felt, you know, we were doing God's work. We were doing kind of good work, God's work. Uh, but who knew that God wanted financial statements? Um, and other types of reporting. And so um, I, I do think that the, I think we just need to move beyond the intentionality. Um, I, I think we all align that we're trying to drive great impact, um, but just understanding how sometimes um, that may block us from seeing and reviewing and going deeper on the evidence base that exists. Great. Yep. Um, of course, before we move further, the one thing we did want to call out is that not all organizations need to or should scale. Um, 
there's a number of times because, you know, scaling is sexy in some ways and you want to do more good, you, you think that this is the right path for me. Uh, what we found is a number of uh, uh, communities, when there's community organizations doing great work within the community, there exist a set of criteria, a set of parameters within that community that don't always translate to a different community. And therefore, even though the intervention is working brilliantly in this one uh, community, it may not actually work in others. Uh, that's not because the intervention is bad, it's because the criteria surrounding it don't exist. And so we just want to call this out that not everyone needs to or should scale. Um, it's something we've also learned as we've done our due diligence. Um, so we've talked about the challenges. Um, I'm just going to turn over to Narendra. We'll, we'll go back and forth here a little bit about how do you break through. We understand there are various challenges, but what do we need to do to then effectively scale? Um, so this is based on our six years of, of working within Canada. And prior to the six years, our partners were engaged and partnering with uh, Pathways to Education. Um, so it takes into those lessons as well. Uh, so we're going to walk through kind of six tips. Uh, the first is avoiding mission creep. Second, do sweat the small stuff. It is really critical. Uh, developing the right talent is a third. Fourth, Seek invested partners and partners that will, will join you in the journey for the long term. Um, the fifth, listen to those that matter most, beneficiaries. Uh, and then the sixth, always get better. So um, always be in a growth mindset um, when you're executing the work. Okay, mission creep. Uh, I think we've all been there. A donor wants uh, a program, but it just needs to be a different way. Um, or, you know, they think that this is the right community to go into. Or there's just a lot of ways how mission creep happens in a sector that's dependent on uh, charitable giving. And, you know, I know I've experienced that and had to say no to funding just because it's out of our scope, out of our strategy. But that's a painful process of saying no to a million dollars. Um, but it is really critical. If you're trying to scale, you need to be laser focused on, um, on your mission and, and ensure that what you're doing is always tying back into how you're going to drive the greatest impact and doesn't get distracted uh, from what else is out there. And so um, Sue, who runs uh, Pathways to Education, uh, you know, reinforces this, that you know, the biggest challenge for scaling, so she says the biggest challenge for scaling a nonprofit is the pressure you receive from stakeholders to do more good in more areas every day. And so managing that and, and saying no and being, again, laser focused on where you're driving the greatest impact and how you can continue to grow that impact is critical. Um, so we have, you know, I think first, firstly, you need to put your why at the center of your story. Um, so, you know, live and breathe your mission, you know, invest that time to really understand and align your stakeholders around the why. You need to be crystal clear on your scope. Um, so, you know, you need to ensure that you manage both your geographical and programming scope. Um, and even when donors come in with ideas and, and um, potential kind of areas to grow, keeping that clarity of, you know, what you're best at and how you can best drive impact is critical. And the third point is uh, be open to change as you scale. 
Um, so it's, so as you scale, things may evolve, society evolves, we evolve. Um, so that may mean that your program evolves as well. Um, so ensure that you're very clear on what you're trying to do, but keep, keep in mind that um, you need to evaluate if your mission needs to change as you, your organization grows, as the environment outside of your organization changes, or new information is received. So the next one we're going to talk about is sweating the small stuff which is right from the start, worry about setting the right standards um, because what initially might seem small as you start to scale uh, will uh, become a pain point. And so sweating the sm small stuff early on um, is something that you should think about. By first, uh, create a no shortcuts culture. So right up front, we all know the saying, perfect is the enemy of the good. Um, and yes, there are times when you need to 80, 28 and get the work done rather than get it work perfectly. But you need to choose carefully where you actually compromise. Because as you scale, anything that you might have left out may become an issue. Um, and then the second one, of course, is under that to create a culture that puts care into the details, into everything. It's the smallest of things that can uh, make a donor turn away or uh, make you lose funding or make a government person not open up your email or offer you a meeting. So be very clear on creating that culture upfront within your organization that will help you scale in the long term. Um, the second one, of course, is invest time into telling your story, uh, but then tell it effectively. And of course, as, as Narendra was saying, things change, and your story will evolve. But put in as much effort into your story as you will initially, uh, the same way that you would at a later stage of your scaling journey, because uh, your reputation gets set very quickly in the space. Um, and people start to relate um, what the organization does, even when the organization changes, to how they first uh, interacted with the organization. Um, and the third one, of course, is don't uh, think about operations and admin because they aren't sort of upfront in front of your customers or in front of your donors as being any less important than your marketing or your actual conversations with a stakeholder. So that's extremely important. Um, and so therefore, find people and build a team that focuses on setting those systems into place. Uh, because when you're designing those systems, if you do truly want to scale, think about designing the system for when you have scaled, not what you need today. Uh, it'll just make life easier as you uh, move forward. And this is something that we've seen Rumi do. Uh, the Rumi initiative initially may have been much more focused on their story uh, but not necessarily on what are all the things they need to think about. But they have evolved their thinking, and now they've shown a commitment which is amazing in terms of getting their objectives right, hiring the right people, um, uh, thinking about their supply chain, thinking about their legal agreements, because they see where they're going, and if they don't put that into place now, it's going to be an issue. Hiring. So um, getting the right people with the most relevant skills is, is critical. Um, you know, our, our, the work is dependent on the people. And so how do you keep, how do you find, keep, um, and, and grow uh, the people within your organization is a critical element. Um, so this idea of, um, the, the first point is around um, letting go of your Legos. 
So as founders, as leaders, you need to be comfortable um, equipping your teams with the decision-making and autonomy that they need to thrive. Um, and so, you know, we've all heard of founder syndrome. We've all heard of the challenges um, that could set in when you're a founder of an organization. But we believe that as a leader, you need to be, you need to ensure that you're not holding your organization back through some of those tendencies. Um, so understand where you are in your scaling phase. Um, there are typically different set of people that you need in a startup phase than you need in a, a, a scale-up phase. So in, ensuring that you have the right people with the right mindsets and technical experience is critical. Um, and and being having the right people in the right roles um, is another I think, obvious reason of what you need uh, to equip you to scale. Uh, the next um, are things that we found when we're looking at startups, uh, what uh, the three kind of people uh, that make it much more enabling for us has been, A, when you have a strong leader, um, when you have a strong board chair, and then you have a strong funding champion. And kind of those three ingredients we found um, have been kind of the secret sauce to how projects have been able to, you know, A, build the right interventions and have kind of the, the strong moral compass as a scale, um, have an appetite for risk and growth. So the chair plays a really critical role in that. Um, and then the funding champion is your unlock. And, you know, this might be, a, the funding champion might be your board chair or might be your strong leader, but it is um, a critical portion of um, a team that is looking to, uh, to scale their, their social intervention. And then focus on, when you're, when you're scaling, you really need to focus on the change management and the culture of your organization of growth. There are many, many examples of organizations that have scaled um, and have left kind of the frontline workers um, that are executing on their program out of that journey. And that ultimately will not be productive as your, uh, for your impact because you need uh, that organizational culture to be strong and you need that consistency and alignment across the organization. Um, developing a, a clear successor, I think we all know that we have an issue in our social sector right now, is we don't have strong succession planning. It's the same in small and medium-sized businesses. So, you know, it, there's, uh, this is a consistent problem I think we face across the world in many sectors. But figuring out who is your successor, successor and how you can enable them um, to be part of the journey or to be brought into the journey with you. Um, and then the change management piece is critical. Um, so we uh, actually have been more proactive um, in the last little bit of change management up front before we started an engagement. Um, we found that that is such a critical component, easily overlooked, um, but a critical component into any successful scaling journey. Uh, Dr. Lena Agameri, uh, you know, she talks about how her staff are um, really driving the change and ensuring that, you know, she is there, committed, and enabling them to, um, to, to prosper has been her priority. Um, the third thing, of course, the fourth thing, sorry, is to seek invested partners, to find donors and partners that are committed with you for the long term and aren't coming in for a single project here and a single project there. So coming back to seeking invested partners, um, 
The first thing is picking the right donor and engaging with them consistently. Um, it goes back a little bit to the point that Narendra made earlier about your mission. Um, and so if you think about creating something new for every donor, your mission is going to sway. So she did mention earlier to say no to donors, and it's a hard thing to do. But you need to think about the right donors up front and then engage them through the journey. A relationship with a donor we found doesn't work just when you need the funding or when they need the report. Uh, there's a consistent way of engaging with your donors through the process um, and getting their advice and seeking their advice and then talking to them about the impact that you're creating along the way, not just at the end of the process. Uh, the second one is explore multiple sources of funding. Uh, we've found when talking to various organizations that there's this perception that there's a communal pot of funding and everyone must go into the same pot, which isn't true. Um, funding can be found in, from individuals, from foundations, from the governments, from the corporate sector. And when you go seek that funding, we found it's effective if you are going in knowing what the funders uh, belief systems are, what they are truly looking for, and why your program or intervention or organization is going to be most key to help that donor or funder uh, achieve their own goals through you. Uh, and so thinking about it as one single communal pot um, is, is a misconception, really. Um, of course, you have to plan your costs up front and manage them carefully against your goals. Uh, just as you start to scale, uh, cost scale as well. And so you do need to think about where do you want to allocate the funding so that you have the highest impact. Um, and that, again, is you have to be clear on your strategy to increase revenues. Um, in the short term, you might say that the only strategy I have is to get funding. Uh, but there are a number of organizations we work with which are now moving from a charity or nonprofit model to a social enterprise model as well. Um, in some ways where they have both, and the social enterprise will be the profits from the social enterprise is going to be funding the long-term sustainability of the charity or the nonprofit. So that's something else to think about as you create your strategy. What is going to be your short and long-term revenue strategy uh, while thinking about your costs as well? Um, and, and so just to add to that, there is, you know, we don't only have to think about grants, right? There is debt. There is, depending on how you're structured, um, potentially an opportunity for equity. Uh, being creative in how you think through kind of your full capital strategy and um, that goes beyond donor dollars is also something um, that is, I think, a growing opportunity for projects. And just to that point, as we go to the third one, which is figuring out how to work with the government, uh, who are, of course, critical for sustainable long-term funding, there are programs within the government where they will match funding. So essentially, they will give you dollars as long as you can find a matched dollar as well. And lots of times we start thinking about how am I actually going to find the match dollar, not realizing that that match dollar doesn't have to be a dollar. It can be a pro bono match dollar as well. So the government may give you a million dollars as long as you are able to find a million dollars worth of volunteering time or pro bono time from other uh, sources. It doesn't have to be a match in that sense. Um, of course, the working uh, with the government has proven to be bureaucratic. Uh, it has proven to be a challenge. Uh, and so therefore, what we've learned from TRIAC down there is it makes sense if you are truly looking to work with the government to hire the right support uh, to be able to unlock that government uh, engagement for you. 
um, just because it, there's, there's lots that can be done when you work actively with the government, but getting in may require support beyond what we have within our organizations. Great, and then listen to those um, who matter. So scaling approaches need to be adjusted to specific communities. So being flexible in your scaling approach is important. It's not about just porting what worked uh, in one city to another. It's about, I, arguably, I, I think the majority of the intervention is probably consistent, but ensuring that the part that needs to be modified and adapted is, is something that you take um, into consideration each time you port into a new community. Um, and also realizing that not all communities have the same resources and capacity. Um, so you may need to have other levels of flexibility in your scaling approach. Uh, pay attention to beneficiary groups who are not regularly targeted by other programs. Um, and ensure that community buy-in and program sustainability by focusing on community implementation plans. So, you know, when you're scaling, you, it, your ideal state is that intervention or that program becomes a part of um, the community infrastructure of social programming. So ensuring that um, you're thinking through that in a thoughtful way and, and bringing together the key players that are needed um, to execute on that. Um, ensure you're welcome. Um, so, you know, in this is really important. We do, we're, our next, our, we're going to be launching our next partnership with an Indigenous-based um, education program. And then next year, maybe having one or two more Indigenous-specific programs coming into our portfolio. Um, but the invitation is really critical. Um, you know, I think it, it is, it's, such, it's such a foundational first step ensuring that your program or intervention will be successful. Um, you may need to adapt languages uh, when you're speaking. We find even in our work between the for-profit sector and the non-profit sector, we tend to translate uh, between those sectors and governments, and then you have to be trilingual to really get this to work, and communities sometimes might have a different nuance or variation in their voice um, that you need to be aware of and adjust to and adapt to. Um, and then redefine success if, if needed. So, you know, I think, and, and, you know, we all get caught up on this. We have a metric or we have one way of where, how we think um, we are going to drive that impact. Uh, but in your, in your expansion to various communities, um, really understanding what success is for the beneficiaries in the communities and having that inform how you look at success within that community is a critical element. Um, we work with uh, Joel Heath. He's the executive director of Arctic Eider Society. Um, they, he's been working for the last, I want to say, 20 years, but I could be getting that uh, number off, but 20 years um, within, indig within indigenous communities. Um, and he has always kind of uh, put community first in every decision he's made, from the way the program's structured, how it was structured, to how, um, who, um, who funds them. And all of these elements link back into what the community wants and needs. Sorry, just to add, add yeah. a point there. We've been learning as well, because uh, with our organizations, we ourselves are growing. Um, and one of the things we learn is uh, the word scaling, um, as often as we like to use it, and it's sort of parlance within the sector, um, it doesn't work in indigenous communities. The word that works is rippling. And so there's a number of, that's the point that uh, Narendra was making about translating the language and speaking 
the community's language if you truly want to be um, working in partnership with them. Um, and finally, um, of course, the last point is to always get better, which is around internal and external metrics and program evaluation playing a key role in scaling. Um, what that means is before you start to think about scaling, it, it makes sense to prove your own impact. So ensure that the program is proven before you start to scale. Um, it sounds a bit obvious, but I think uh, it doesn't always translate. Um, the second one is, uh, a gentleman earlier was saying that storytelling is definitely acceptable. It's a device that we all use. However, we have found that stringent, stringent evidence uh, and the desire for it is becoming more and more critical. Um, and then, of course, telling your story from all of your collective evaluations is a good way of showing a holistic view of what your intervention or organization is about. Um, the other one is evaluate regularly. Uh, as programs evolve and change and grow, uh, the impact that you're having also changes. And therefore, the, an evaluation that you might have done four years ago, four years later, might be totally redundant. Uh, one thing we have learned is that the government does like the SROI calculations where you've got a large firm uh, uh, that provides a certain sense of legitimacy, if you will, to that number. But the other thing that we are also learning is SROI as a number, social return on investment as a number, most organizations are starting to move away from. And the reason for that is SROI is easy to be misused just because it is this one number which comes with so many assumptions behind it. So if you've got certain inputs to a program and then you produce a social return on investment number, a similar program might be working slightly differently. The assumptions they made in their SROI calculation might be different. And so their SROI number might be smaller. And it does happen that <coughs> funders will want to look at the larger SROI number, even though the programs might be slightly different and the assumptions might be different, and fund one versus another. And therefore, organizations are trying to move away from SROI as the measure of your impact and looking at it more holistically as what are the ranges of social impact that I'm creating around health, education, employment, uh, et cetera. Yeah. And the challenge is, is we don't have an objective measure of impact, right? Like there, it's hard to say what is the way to measure impact. Um, and, and so SROI was, it, it's a great tool to internally think through your impact um, you know, what is a net present value of impact per beneficiary? Um, so it can be very enabling, but the risk is we, we as humans have really, have like really try to take that number and, and, um, and don't necessarily understand all of the assumption bases that are, have gone into getting to that number. The other thing we found is the greatest value that uh, the social ventures have in running impact evaluations isn't actually for funding. It's for the process of running an evaluation and understanding what is and is not working in your program creates a brilliant feedback loop into updating and modifying the program so it can create the impact that you've been wanting to create. But you cannot assess that or, create or update the program till you've actually done that study. Um, and so that's where people are starting to use it more and more is to improve rather than just as a means of funding. Um, and then finally, uh, I talked about the SROI already, and then randomized controlled trials are quite an important element as well. Um, and then there's lean data, which is a new methodology almost, that uh, Acumen, I believe, are the yeah. ones that came up with it. And it's, um, 
I encourage you to is Google, if you just Google lean data and acumen, it's a way of measuring impact without it being as cumbersome as social impact measurement tends to be or is seen to be. And so they've come up with a methodology of how you can still understand what you're doing without having to conduct the long-term, uh, longitud longitudinal surveys to be able to understand what the impact yeah. is. Yeah, and so just a few like highlights on that. It's about immediate feedback. They use a survey system. It's tech-enabled. Um, they have a toolkit on their website that you could download that walks through kind of six types of questions that can help inform um, um, you as an organization if, you're, if your clients are you know, happy and, 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 and how they feel about the products or services you're providing. Their lens has still been social enterprises for profits, but absolutely applicable, I think, if we consider our beneficiaries kind of our clients and who we're trying to kind of achieve the, the best product or intervention for it's, an, it's a, an applicable structure to apply. Um, but it's tech-enabled, kind of survey-based, um, and easy to use is really their kind of mantra around creating that. And so just to recap, uh, the, the six essential areas that we believe um, organizations need to focus on in order to scale effectively are avoiding mission creep, sweating the small stuff early on so you can scale effectively, Developing the right talent, both at the initial and later stages of your uh, journey. Seeking partners that are going to be invested for the long term. Listening to your beneficiaries, listening to the people that matter the most around the intervention and the program that you're creating. And getting better, measuring and improving consistently. Uh, I'm going to turn over to Narinder yeah. now to talk about um, our first portfolio uh, charity, SNAP. Uh, as a case study of how we supported them in their own scale-up journey. And yeah. we'll start with a quick video. Yeah, perfect. Um, and so we have about 15 minutes before lunch. Uh, we're going to spend another five minutes walking through our journey with Snap and then use the last 10 minutes to have a conversation around scaling. When people look at me, they see a bully, a delinquent, a problem. People see my outbursts trips to the principal's office, or that boy who made your kid cry. People see all these things, they don't see me. My name is Kevin, and I could be more than this. So SNAP was our first social venture. We looked at 120, uh, about six, six years ago, is before I came, so six years ago, uh, picked Snap. What attracted us to Snap was their evidence base. Um, so they had run, they had randomized controlled trials done by independent researchers. Um, they had brain scans in partnership with sick kids that showed um, what happened, how the brain is rewired when you go through the Snap training in 13 weeks. And so SNAP is a program that works with children and their parents and helps them make better decisions in the moment. Um, so these are kids that have kind of severe behavioral challenges, conduct disorder, and what the statistics say are, are, uh, is that they will um, more likely end up um, within the criminal justice system. Um, and so, so what we knew also was that SNAP was cost effective. So every dollar spent on SNAP gave $32 um, in benefits from convictions alone. And this was an independent researcher who validated that from a Pittsburgh study. Um, so SNAP, again, a really interesting story. Uh, they had vet, very 
a little penetration across Canada, but they had, uh, they had scaled their intervention to Pittsburgh, to Tokyo, to Ireland, to a whole uh, kind of global landscape of, of spots. Um, but, you know, the issue in Canada was there. You know, we have not provided children with mental health the right sets of support to overcome the challenges that they may face. Um, so, so SNAP, when we met, um, was offering a number of different programming. So when we talked about Mission Creep, um, Dr. Lena will, Dr. Lena Agamari will agree with me. They were running about 13 different programs. Um, they had um, a universal and a targeted schools program. Um, they were working with about 800 kids. Um, they were in about 16 sites across Canada, four globally, um, and they had a small team with about an operating budget of half a million. They sat in a larger organization. They were a program of um, CDI. And so this has been our journey so far. Um, we are in year five of eight. Um, we, are, um, yeah, we will be hitting our targets in the eight years of being in 140 communities across the country. Um, you know, we started in 2013 with the prepare phase. Um, we've infused more than $3 million of pro bono and helped attract about $30 million of capital of funding, donor dollars, um, into the program to help scale it. Um, but it has been a journey where um, we've been embedded day to day. Um, Lena's has had to make some really hard decisions, in particular in the strategy portion. Um, she's running 13 programs. The evidence was linked to two of them. So we focused on those two and grew those two. And, and so she had, she's had to make some very tough decisions as a founder, as, an, as a, the executive director of the program, um, but has been a phenomenal partner for us uh, because she's been resilient. She's had a strong moral, moral compass that is always focused on putting the child first and what is best for children across Canada. Um, she has worked phenomenally well um, with our partners that you know, range the corporate sector from BCG to EY. Um, and we've taken, what we often do is um, we support their board by joining the board of the organization. So as a center, our team embeds into their management team and works in partnership. But then we have one of our advisors or board members um, also join their board. So we have that kind of deep connection with the organization and alignment uh, on our scaling journey throughout. Um, this is just a snapshot of where we've gone. Um, and, and post LEAP and post kind of our partnership, um, they will be, um, they will have scaled to um, eight times the kids that they work with before they started. And that in which, um, and in addition to that, 22,000 kids will be touched through a universal program that we're scaling across the school boards. Uh, but this is an example of how we work, um, but it's about finding an evidence-based program that works and then wrapping around that institutional support, getting people part of our journey to be with us. So funders, government, MCYS um, was a phenomenal partner um, in the launch of our, our Ontario expansion. The government, NCPC, has enabled um, the federal, the, the national expansion. So ensuring that you have both the public sector, the private sector, and, and her pairs within the nonprofit sector all working together on this mission of ensuring that children with conduct disorder have access to the best services um, to overcome their barriers. Uh, ton of journey, uh, or sorry, ton of learnings uh, through this journey. Um, and I think the, the 
the resilience and grit that it requires to scale should not be underestimated. The number of barriers that we've come across, how we've pivoted, how we've learned some of our strategies um, didn't work or, or, or needed to, to be changed and modified um, was critical um, as part of this long-term partnership. Uh, there's 10 key learnings um, that we've have articulated with our journey from SNAP. I'm gonna highlight two of them and then we can move into um, the Q&A. Uh, but the, the, the government partners have been critical um, to expedite our scale. So the, the partnerships that we've been able to secure in some of the provinces and at a federal level have been enabling. Um, and the technology has been a critical underlying uh, uh, underlay of, of the scale. So if we are going to scale an intervention, we need to ensure that at scale we can um, be the most effective and efficient as possible, um, that we can ensure that um, we can measure and, and, and understand the impact we're having um, and then connect a Canada-wide movement of, of different service delivery agencies across the country supporting children's, and children's mental health in, in a very effective way to address their challenges. Um, so the technology piece, government, in addition to these other 10 um, learnings, have been part of our journey with SNAP. Uh, we have another three years to go, and I'm sure we'll have another set of 10 to 100 learnings um, within, in, within that journey as well. Some resources for scale. Um, there, uh, Bridgespan is one which um, is the Transformative Scale Resource Center. They manage that. It's out of the US. Have really some great structural um, advice on, on scaling. Scaling Up Excellence, great book. Um, and we're happy to um, connect you with other types of resources as well. Um, as an organization, we're always open to meet and connect. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time with uh, organizations across the country. Um, and so, you know, the first step is always, you know, connecting, having that conversation around. Um, if you want to scale, how can we potentially support your journey or connect you with others that can as well? So we're always open to that. And I'm going to end it off with David Pico's quote. So let's try some new models to attack old problems. Um, so for us, that's about deep cross-sectoral partnerships that, that move across sectors and silos to focus on an issue area and intervention and scale that. Um, and so that's kind of our kind of compass at the center. Uh, but at, at any moment, if you have a question, you want to talk about scaling, you want to go deeper into your intervention, we'd be happy to set up a time. Our contact details are here. Um, Jill um, is um, celebrating Thanksgiving, so sends her regrets, um, but she couldn't make it. Uh, but we're always open. So thank you all. This was a great conversation. Uh, let's engage in a few other, I think we have a little bit more time. Okay, a few more minutes. So we'd love to open it up. Uh, for any questions. So I will circulate with the microphone, but in the interest of time and making sure that everybody has a chance to ask the question, perhaps if somebody asks a question, you can hear it, you could just repeat it back into the microphone. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, what happens when you assess 600 or 600 yeah. so the ones that don't make it to the final, what happens? Great question. Uh, so we, A, we try to feed back as much of the diligence as we can uh, because it's a process that it can be valuable for the organization as well. Uh, we try to connect uh, to other agencies. So we, 
We focus on large-scale, Canada-wide scale, but there's other intermediaries that focus on um, different types of scaling across Canada. Um, so whether it's Interweave or um, Capacity Canada, there's other peer agencies that we're really close to and, and connect with often that we can reference and refer. Um, and sometimes it's just not the right moment, so we keep in touch and we continue to be um, a, a, somebody who they can come to to talk about any questions or challenges, but um, just not for many reasons, I think, and typically on both sides. Um, the other thing is during the due diligence process, one of the things we do try and do, especially for organizations that are further along, the, uh, we've got a four-stage process, we actually, whether or not they'll eventually make it to a portfolio, we find value in working with them through the process. So we've got an organization right now, we don't have a decision on them, but we are actually working with them and our sector partners to create an impact assessment for them. Just because we think it's an interesting program, they should be able to articulate it. Yeah. So I think there's still benefit the organizations find along the process. Yeah. The other thing we tend to do is because we have the privilege of speaking to so many organizations, we try and make connections between organizations as well, um, just because we realize there are similar interventions which would benefit from working together. Uh, what's the typical sort of size, the ideal size that you find in terms of scaling? Uh, yeah, that was my first question. I do have another one that just escaped my... Oh, oh and also, this, my second question is, what do you think that the corporate partners like that, state, those, you know, the big names, um, how can they... Like, they're all... I assume that they're looking at, a, at, at trying to achieve greater impact by working through you and, and having that partnership. Um, have you ever seen them working in, directly with charities, or how, how might you approach that? Yeah. Um, so, so the first question is... Are the scales or agencies that we tend to work with tend to be around the program itself tends to be around about half a million to a million. Um, but that, I wouldn't say, is kind of the right number saying that this needs to scale. I think it just happens to be that we find program, programs that are within that um, space where they need that support to get to the next level. We've, we've had conversations, and there's one program that's porting in potentially to Canada, is a much larger global organization. And so they, it, it's hard to say. It's hard to really answer that with, I think, the, the, the type of data I'd like to. Um, but, uh, yeah. They, they double, like the one you use. You know, they yeah. eight times the number of companies. Yeah. Like, you have a goal in mind for the 10 times of the 5, 5 million dollars? <clears throat> yeah. yeah. So we are looking at large-scale impact. And the way we look at it is um, it's going to be... Um, uh, a formula of the number of people you affect, so your beneficiary, times the net present value of impact per beneficiary. And so we go through a process where, um, in, through the diligence working with the, the social venture, is we're mapping out, okay, how could this, like, what, what is the potential reach of this? And so the, the breadth, and then what is the depth of your intervention? And so we'll go through, in the diligence phase, not a on impact assessment, but um, we will put together, uh, I, I say black, back of the envelope, but that might be underselling the amount of work and effort that goes into it, but uh, we put together an impact assessment to understand what are the levers of impact this intervention is having, and then that at scale, could that drive you know, $100 million of economic impact um, for society? Um, and that becomes a bar for us to say this will have, quote unquote, massive impact at scale. And then the second question you had um, was... Around the corporate. 
Oh, corporate, yes. So absolutely, our corporate partners still work with others um, beyond us. And so we become a really great channel for them because we commit that time and the diligence, getting to know the sector. Um, all of us in our team have worked in the sector on both sectors, for-profit and non-profit. Um, so we become a really good bridge for them, but they do execute on other projects outside of ourselves. I would say that what I've heard most from corporate is don't just go with the money ask. Team it with something that connects our employees and it connects our employees in a meaningful way. Um, so, how do you get the minds the minds inspired about uh, with the intervention or the program that you're running? Um, and there's some really great ways that you, as a social venture, can unlock even more value beyond that hundred thousand dollar grant um, from a corporate that could be transformative. Um, so, I would say, yeah, just go go in it with a vision of. Yes, money is great, but you could actually get a lot more value and a, long, a lot more of a, a long-term partnership if you embed um, that engagement at an at a, a intellectual level, so utilizing and, and enabling pro bono. And in fact, when we run due diligence as well as when we work with our portfolio charities and our nonprofits, um, people across our corporate partners work with us and with those charities hand in glove. So um, a number of times we actually rely on our um, corporate sector partners and the people in them. We call them impact catalysts because they help us catalyze great impact. Um, they work with us to actually help us determine uh, which are the right um, organizations to partner with and where we could, even if we don't partner with them, how could we still provide these services through the process? Um, and and uh, we found that the impact catalysts found, find great value in being able to contribute in that way outside of their day jobs. Yeah, and and so this this idea of like merging meaning and, and money is is part of what we're seeing, particularly with millennials who want to, you know, do well, you know, make a good living, but also do good and 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 be part of a kind of growing equity within society. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention about the corporate relationships, um, which is just now. So I, if it comes to me, I'll let you know. Any other questions? I have one quick one, yeah. and I, I hope it's, well, a quick question. I hope the answer is relatively quick. But from the six-stage process that you guys have articulated about that organizations have to identify, even from the partners that you're working with, yeah. are, there some obvious, are there some obvious, like, consistent fallacies that some of them are making? Like, is there a particular area of the six-stage process where you see organizations making the same and same mistakes again? Or is it kind of a completely independent case-by-case -case basis? So I would say get, letting go of your Legos is a really, there's actually a really great article. I think it's Stanford wrote it. Um, it's great for any founder. So if you're working, if you're an executive director, if you know an executive director who's a founder, or even an executive director who's not a founder, give them this article. Um, but it is, I think, letting go of your Legos, like understanding um, that at scale in particular, you need to get comfortable with others making decisions um, and having a team of people you trust and enable. I think that's a challenge for a lot of leaders. And I, again, not just isolated to the social sector. I think just in general, leaders like to keep control. So um, I think that's a consistent theme that we, we work on together with our, with our projects. Um, Okay. That's the big one. And, and I did remember the other point. Um, pro bono can be done well and it can be done poorly. And I think 
many of you will have the experience of a spectrum of pro bono that you've received within your projects. And so I would say, and it can be transactional and it can be transformative. So there's a spectrum of pro bono. Um, the best is to get also senior level governance on it. Um, so what we do explicitly in, in our pro bono is we have the CEOs or the heads of our, our corporate sit on our advisory board or board, um, and, you know, and, and then we can work with uh, the partner, the senior groups within our corporate partners to ensure that the quality of output is not side a desk of the most junior person in the corporate. That's not necessarily going to add the greatest value, but it, it is created in a structural way that is like they would staff another client engagement. So I think that's just an important piece of how you can, and I think I think you should, as a social venture, ask for that, right? Of like, can we build a team that's kind of not, you know, that's across the organization and across uh, across the the hierarchy of the organization as well. And there was a question at the back. Um, this might be too specific for the question, but um, so for an organization that's just over ten billion, yeah, in the context of it's a great question. Um, not going to answer it directly, but we should touch base on, on, on it um, afterwards, just so I can understand your specific context. But the biggest gap we see is the role of a COO in um, a, a nonprofit that's growing. So having the founder or the ED and a COO that's strong and can execute on the operational level is one of the biggest gaps we see within the projects that we look at. Whether And we've looked at some that are 20 million, 10 million, like that, those sizes. Uh, that seems to be a consistent gap um, within the sector. Uh, but maybe, I think, I don't know, Gaurav, if you want to add in kind of some averages, I just would need to know your program structure a bit more to really um, to give a more useful, I think, response to that. But yeah. And I don't think yeah. there's a particular size yeah. that will fit. I think when we do organizational design for uh, some of the organizations we work with, uh, we don't actually care about how many. We always start by looking at what needs to get done, and then you start to think about what actually, what are the skill sets you need, yeah. what are the numbers you need, et cetera. So I don't think there's a one-size yeah. answer. Yeah. Um, Except the COO role, I will say, is sure. such a critical missing piece in a lot of social ventures. Um, and that would be the one thing I would highlight. But other than that, I think let's talk offline and we can um, talk about kind of your, your structure in particular. Well, thank you so much, Narinder and Gaurav, for this session. I think it was terrific. Thank you all for participating. Um, it is time for the Philanthropy Awards luncheon, so you can make your way into uh, the banquet hall. Please take a minute to using your app or using your forms to complete a session evaluation. If you use the paper one, just fold them over, and I'll collect them and uh, uh, I'll collect them and put them in the envelope for uh, for bringing to the AFC yes, desk. So thank you again, everybody. Enjoy the rest of the day. He has a card. I didn't bring my card. Oh, thank you.